Hello and welcome once again to Wrestling Memories. I'm your host, Glenn Broggett, and this week on Wrestling Memories, as we're uh, heading towards the, well, we've kind of uh, are in the uh, end game of the long Thanksgiving uh, weekend, uh, I decided I'm going to have a, a special guest on that I've been friends with online in the Facebook world. He's uh, a professional, former professional wrestler. He's one of the guys that made the, the main event guys look oh so good. He's one of the unsung heroes of professional wrestling. He has worked with the AWA, the WWF, Herb Abrams, UWF, and countless Midwest Indies. Today, we're going to share a few wrestling memories with a guy that uh, I saw plenty of uh, on WWE TV and on the old AWA. So we're going to get a bunch of me- different memories in today with a guy that doesn't get as much uh, press, you know, and I think it's about high time what we remember our guest today, Mr. Todd Becker, one of the great uh, Midwest workers of the late 80s and into the 90s. 90s. Boy, Todd, we're going to go into the old time machine today. Uh, welcome to the program. Well, good morning, Glenn. Uh, good to hear from you this morning. Uh, how are things? Good to be here. Oh, things are absolutely great. And thank you so much for uh, connecting with me. Like I said, uh, we're going to go over your career. We talked a little bit uh, before we uh, got the interview started today uh, about one of the areas of discussion. We're going to get into uh, the UWF. Uh, we're talking the Herb Abrams UWF era. We're going to talk about that shortly. But Todd Becker, I want to get a little bit of background uh, information about you, how you got broke into the pro wrestling business. Uh, were you a Minneapolis kid? What? Well, let's take us back into your wrestling story. Did you watch it? as a kid yeah go back take us back in the old time trip you know you know it all started uh, you know i was a i was a wrestler boy we started wrestling uh as a kid probably eight years old uh i had two brothers i was the middle kid but we we wrestled since we were little wrestled through the elementary high school uh i got a little burnt out with uh high school wrestling and my senior year but other than that we 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 ran real heavy doing uh, high school wrestling, and then I got into lifting, and I was always a big fan of the AWA. Of course, everybody remembers getting done uh, Sunday, getting hurrying up, uh, getting away from church. When church oh, yeah. is done, running home, getting in front of the TV and watching the AWA. I mean, that was uh, that was a big highlight of a Sunday, whether it was 30 below zero or a summer day. It didn't matter. And uh, I always loved it, and I started working out with some guys, uh, in Alexandria, and we had talked about it. And then, of course, I moved to the Minneapolis area. I, I grew up around Alexandria. Okay. Uh, graduated from Parker's Prairie is a small town. Actually, Urbank is where I'm really from. So Urbank is a very small town up in Midwest sure. uh, uh, Minnesota. So anyways, I, I got into uh, the Minneapolis area. I was working out. I was bouncing at uh, the Burnsville Bowl. Uh, Maplewood Bowls and Bowl Rushes in Burnsville. And I was hooking up with uh, some of the old, I was actually working out with the Rockers, um, some of the Minnesota Vikings, the Nasty Boys. And, uh, and one of the guys that I worked out with always wanted to go through uh, into pro wrestling as well. And uh, somehow he had hooked up or got the information from Brad Ringens. Of course, everybody knows Brad Ringens was a Olympic wrestler. He was a Pan American gold medalist in the 1980s. He was just a bear. And this guy pretty much trained everybody in the AWA. Uh, put, it this, put it this way, if you went through Brad Ringens' school, that was the school. That was the Harvard of pro wrestling back in the day. So, you know, there was other small town uh, wrestling schools. Never compared to Brad Ringens. And actually, the Ganyas 
always kind of went to Brad for talent uh, and good educated uh, workers such as uh, you know Brad and Wayne the Train Bloom and uh, Jeremy Lynn. There's a lot of guys that came in from my era. So yeah, Brad brought in and, and he trained you hard. He was uh, he was very disciplined. You couldn't be a wimp going into his school. Um, I uh, yeah I had my uh, I used to gra- grapple with Brad. Of course, Brad was an Olympian and. You know, he's trying to put me on my back. That would never go over, but he uh, ripped the cartilage in my ribs at one time. And we had still had three weeks of training left, and they hurt. Of course, you hit the you hit the ropes with your ribs, mm-hmm. and it hurt very bad. But uh, you know what Brad said? Suck it up. We had to wrap up my ribs, and I finished uh, training camp with Brad. But, uh, yeah, Brad was brutal. But, you know, if you made it through Brad's school, of course, you had some credentials. So thanks to Brad, uh, he made uh, he made my future bright. So thanks to Brad. I got to ask about that when you first started. I mean, uh, were you? Uh, I mean, of course, you were in good shape at the time. But what was it like to get into get acclimated from being in good physical condition to getting in true wrestling condition? Because a lot of the stuff that you had to go through in wrestling school and others have went through, it's a lot about that conditioning to get you you ready as far as ring shape and ring ready. So, what was that like as compared to training for other things? Uh, you know, whether it be uh, in high school or, or or like in the weightlifting business, you know, weightlifting or sports. How do you compare that sort of conditioning for wrestling? Uh, well, you know, every, everybody thinks it's a, just a big acrobatic show and you're, you're throwing 300-pound guys around. When you, you're running in the ring, you know, uh, lifting and throwing 250, 300-pound men for 15 minutes, and there's no break, there's no time. You, know, you get bumped, hurt, teeth chipped. Uh, you know, you get rattled many times, but you have to keep moving, and, and it's... I don't care. You think you're in shape. It's not the same. It's not the same as running a marathon. It's not the same as benching or working out at the gym. You have to be physically conditioned. And most guys don't understand what it takes to be in that ring throwing somebody around for 15 minutes. It is a lot of work. You have to have a lot of uh, athletic ability. And it's not what you think it is. And there's many people that come from pro football and even an MMA and they think, okay, well, I'm going to go into pro wrestling and it's just a, you know, I can handle that. And they realize how difficult and how brutal it is. Uh, Don Pry was a big MMA guy and he was a beast. But uh, if you ever listen to his, uh, uh, he got inducted to the, uh, what was it, the UFC Hall of Fame. And he says, he says, you know, I got done wrestling or got done uh, in in the UFC and I went into pro wrestling. I figured it'd be an easy uh, an easy role. He said, boy, was I wrong. And, uh, it is brutal. It is not that easy. And, uh, you have to be physically conditioned, physically tough. These guys, these guys can take a beating for 15, 20 minutes. So, you know, you have to be very tough to be in the business and, um, you can't, uh, people can't compare, you know, if it's, I remember we used to go to the cattle company years ago and the Minnesota Vikings were there. And uh, the minute the wrestlers showed up, they were out the door because these guys were nuts, and these guys wouldn't stop if anything ever happened because they were just uh, they're just animals, you know. So uh, you have to be in good shape. You have to be conditioned. And you have to be tough. No wimps. No wimps in this business. 
Did you uh, see some guys that when you were in the training process, did you see some that didn't quite uh, didn't quite connect to it or just was not ready, bought into the television aspect, wanted oh. to be a star, figured, hey, I got the great body, I'm going to go do this, and then just completely got their balloon popped? Oh, you know what? I've seen it all the time. Pretty boy or even some big power lift or some big muscle head that thought they could hang, and they figured they were just going to walk in. When you see these guys in the wrestling business, and of course they're big, they look good, it really doesn't matter how big or how good they look. It's who you know and, and if you can perform. So, yeah, it's great when you look good. It's great when you have that look, uh, that ability, that helps. But it um, doesn't matter how big you are, um, how much you bench, how, how fast you are. You've got to be well-rounded. Um, Terry Zapinski from the Powers of Pain, phenomenal wrestler, extremely strong. This guy was, I seen him bench 615 pounds. He was a uh, decline 615. The guy was an animal. He was real close to the world record back back then. But uh, the guy had tons of talent, very fast, very, uh, very, very well trained, very professional. But he never got a shot because he didn't know the right people or he didn't do the right things. So. A lot of guys come in there. I mean, Terry Sapinski, like one of them, could have been much bigger, much better than what he was ever given the chance to do. But, uh, you know, he could have been better, but he was only given a small piece, and, uh, you know, that's what he had, you know. So, yeah. so, and it also depends on who you know. You have to have the talent, but you got to know the right people. So. And I bet you've seen your fair share of uh, of politicking uh, in uh, many a locker room. Just for an example, uh, through through your run when you did start working in the wrestling business. I mean, even on smaller levels, there's always going to be some level of hierarchy, and you can see it go down. Uh, either you get caught up in it, or you kind of step away and watch not to do with some of uh, the promoters and some of the people who are trying to either use their influence or try to gain influence from somebody else. Right, and you know what? Um, a lot of times it is who you know. And, I, and when I was in the business, of course, I kept really quiet. I kept to myself, kept my mouth shut. A lot of guys came in there, they shoot their mouth off. And I've seen guys, like a Monday Night Raw or something, where, you, you know, our job, my job was to put a guy over. I mean, if they brought in a, an ultimate warrior or somebody that was new, and you had to make them look really strong. You had to, I mean, if I look like crap and he couldn't throw me around, and he looked like crap. So, we're, you know, it, I put him over. That was my job. Was, you know, that's what we did. We put these guys over. But I've seen guys that come over that came, and they thought, well, okay, well, I'm supposed to get pinned here. And then they'll stand up, and they'll start with a comeback in wrestling. You know, a comeback, whereas, you dummy, you just blew it, and now you pissed the guy off in the ring. So he's going to beat the hell out of you in the ring. And then when you're done... And you get back in the dressing room, you're going to get beat down by three, four more guys, and then you're going to be fired. So I've seen it many times where these guys thought, okay, here's my chance. So I'm going to, accept, I'm going to get back up after a DDT or something from a, from a main, main event guy, and then they'll get pummeled and beat. And then when they get back in the dressing room, then everybody else will take a shot at them, and then they, they'll, they'll be fired, and they'll have to do it they go. So you don't do that shit. You don't, uh, you don't burn your bridge. You got to suck it up. I've had guys that stiff me in the ring because, of course, they don't like younger guys. But you know, you just got to deal with it. So, for you to think that you're going to change things and you're going to be the new star just by changing the story, that ain't going to happen. So, 
I've wanna, seen it many times. I want to talk about you getting into the ring and, and starting to work as a professional. You told us about the uh, training with Brad Rangens, and boy, you talk about what a sturdy trainer he was. But uh, when, when, was it, when were you ready to get going into the ring? And what was the situation like getting into that first match? And can you remember uh, oh, uh, who you worked with and how it yeah. went down? I tell you what, I, I got done with training, and I trained with Brad Ringens. Wayne the Train Bloom was my strength coach. And we had about four of us going through training camp, me, Jeremy Lynn, um, Tom Burton, and the guy, uh, Rick LaRavis, out of uh, Florida. But um, I'll tell you what, you went through training camp, they brought in guys like Road Warriors and Steiners and, and uh, Bad Company. And uh, once we finally got trained, it doesn't matter. You can get trained, but if Brad doesn't like you or Brad thinks you suck, you ain't going to get any work. You have to go somewhere else. And Brad, of course, has great connections with the Ganyas. And uh, Brad got me a shot. I had to work with Wayne. My first match was Wayne the Train Bloom. It was like Council Bluffs, uh, uh, Council Bluffs, Iowa, right by uh, Omaha, Nebraska. And uh, I think it was a place called Fat Jacks or something in, in Council Bluffs. But anyways, I went down there with uh, Baron Von Ratsky. And I tell you, Baron was like a father to me. Uh, everything, uh, I spent many times on the road with the guy. He's just a great, great guy. And I know I had to wrestle Wayne the train that night. And I was all nervous. You know, I thought, oh, boy, you know, I'm, this is an AWA deal, and I definitely don't want to screw this deal up for my first match. I was really nervous. And then Baron says, hey, what's, what's the matter, kid? I said, well, my first match, so I'm afraid, I'm afraid of messing up. And he goes, ah, go have some fun. Go have fun. So I kind of loosened up, and I worked with Wayne. Wayne was a great worker. Of course, I worked with him many, many months in training camp. So it turned out to be a really good match. Everything worked good. And Baron went back, put in a good word for me. He said I did great, uh, good, great, whatever it was. But uh, he gave me, put in a good word for me. Then after that, I had uh, quite a bit of work with the Ganyas. And uh, a lot of it uh, is thanks to Baron Von Rasky because, you know, if he would have went back and uh, if I would have got a bad report or he didn't say much, then who knows where it would have gone. But um, thanks to Baron, I think Baron was was a good man, and it was good to have him in my corner. So I spent many time on the road with Baron. So and, and what sort of things like what? Then what sort of things did you pick up from the Baron? I mean, aside from he he liked what you were doing, he could see that you were uh, you were an apt pupil for the wrestling ring. But what did you uh, take in from Baron for those times? Whether it would be uh, on the road, in the locker room, and and, and just working with him. Uh, I mean, this is a guy at the at the point in your career. Baron was uh, what twelve over 20, 25 years in the business, and he had uh, he been in there, he done that. And he was a guy that started just from innocent beginnings. He was the quiet amateur Jim Rashke who uh, found himself in the character of Baron Von Rashke. So he knows how the road can be, especially uh, for someone who started out so quiet and became this legend. But what did you pick up from Baron? You know, because, man, this guy is a walking encyclopedia of knowledge and of the territories and just dealing with the, the many different political winds of change through the years. Yes. And, you know, Baron... Baron was a big wrestling fan. I mean, I think if anybody knows Baron, he's almost at almost every state wrestling tournament. He's just, uh, he just loves wrestling. He loves uh, high school wrestling. He's always been in that era. He knew where I came from. He knew I was a, a, a big wrestler in the past. So, you know, we understood each other. 
spent some time together in, in his knowledge and, uh, you know, and I, I, I always showed much respect to Baron. I respected everybody. I kept my mouth shut and I did what I was supposed to. I wasn't a loud mouth trying to make a name for myself. I just did what I was supposed to do and I kept my mouth shut. And that's kind of what you want to do. Granted, some guys get lucky and they, you know, they have somebody to push them and uh, they get a shot when they shouldn't get a shot because of somebody they know. So, you know, I always went, I went down the road to where I just, uh, I, I did things right and I, I stayed out of the drama and I respected guys, even though if they weren't respectable, I just, uh, I tried to get along with everybody because you, you do, you never know. You never know who's going to stab you in the back or who's going to talk crap about you when you're not around. So you, you try to keep everything clean, you know, so we're talking around there and, and mm-hmm. yeah. We're talking with Todd Becker yeah. on this special edition of Wrestling Memories. Uh, Todd, you wanted to add one more thing about the Baron? Yeah, you know, Baron was just a great coach. He's a good coach. you got to remember Baron Ron, Ron Rasky was also a school, uh, prior lake, uh, substitute teacher. Uh, he was in real estate. He worked at the Minnesota Zoo, but he was a longtime um, substitute teacher for prior lake. And... Um, very, very knowledgeable man. You know, people may not think that he's probably some just big, goofy uh, wrestler that's not very bright, but he's a very intelligent man, you know. So I learned a lot from him, and uh, I uh, watched how he handled things and how he kept his composure, and he was he was a true professional. Not, not many, he doesn't get enough uh, respect in that nature, but he was very professional, and, and uh, I respect him a lot. Very talented man. Now, was there other workers besides Baron that you uh, were able to connect with uh, while you were beginning to get into the AWA? And, of course, you ended up working a few of the TV tapings uh, in 1989. But were there a few of the other guys? What was, you know, because at the time the AWA had a, you know, even though it was getting to be the last days of the of the promotion, there was a, a really an interesting locker room uh, through various points in 1989 all the way up to uh, them shutting down the company. But what was that like? Uh, did, you, did you find a, a few uh, kindred spirits? both uh, with the veterans and some of the guys that you were working with underneath uh, when you made your way to uh, the AWA and started working some of these TV shots? Yeah, I mean, um, like I said, I, mean, I was always real close with the Baron. Guys like Larry Zabisco uh, was really respectable, and uh, he was always very helpful. Uh, that's another guy that I think was uh, was a big uh, was a big help in my, in my career, so... Being around those kind of those kind of guys, um, Wahoo McDaniel, another one. Um, I spent some time with Wahoo doing some uh, doing some shows in the upper upper Midwest. So, um, yeah, I think those are a few guys that that were definitely a, a plus in the beginning. You know, before I went with uh, doing, I was doing mostly uh, for a while there. I was probably with the WWF doing quite a few of the the Monday Night Raws mm-hmm. uh, with them. So. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit. Uh, well, we'll get into the AWA and, of course, the Universal Wrestling Federation. But I want to talk about some of the stuff uh, you did uh, worth with the AWA. And uh, there was, you know, again at the time, the AWA made their big move to uh, for TV tapings to the Mayo Civic Center in Rochester, and this was right around the time the AWA was doing the Team Challenge uh, routine. 
as yeah. well yeah. as uh, the TV studio stuff. Uh, for a while before they went to Rochester, they had uh, stuff in a TV studio. What can you remember about, uh, you know, because you were part of the Team Challenge series. There was some interesting twists and turns in the series uh, in its uh, limited run. But what was it like when you were approached with an idea of being a part of uh, not only the locker room and these ESPN tapings, but also in this uh, idea that has these three teams competing within a point system? It was kind of different at the time. And, you know, it, it seemed like a good idea on paper, but, you know... We, it gave us some good moments, but it could have been a whole lot more. But what can you remember about, you know, you're working, you're doing, working these preliminary matches, but you're, you kind of somehow ended up finding your way into the Team Challenge series. Can you talk about that at the time as far as the AWA and the Team Challenge and regards to the locker room, too, because there was more defections at that time? Right, and you know what? That The Team Challenge series, you know, I, I thought that was a, I thought it started out, it was a great idea. I, you know, a lot of that stuff, I don't remember I'd turn the TV on on a Sunday and maybe a Yukon John would uh, come in and say something and then he's going to have a uh, maybe a, 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 a tag team partner that I had no idea it was me. I'd go down and we'd do TV taping at the mail that Sunday night. But a lot of the stuff that came about on the Team Challenge series wasn't really talked about much until we actually got there. You know, but the, the Team Challenge series, I thought... Uh, I thought it went pretty well. You know, of course, if if they uh, probably rode into it a little more, I think it would have been better. But, you know, I think that was a lot of good times. It made a lot of sense. It kept people on their toes as to the teams, their points, who's facing who, you know, the Visco's legends, Ben's um, uh, Blitzers. Yeah, and then uh, Sergeant uh, Slaughter had one, too. Yeah, Sla- yeah Sergeant, uh, yeah, what was it? Was it the Mara- Slaughter's uh, Marauders? Yeah, something like it's, that. It's yeah, just right. something that rhymed and rolled off the tongue. But then he ends up leaving, and then it suddenly shifts over to uh, Ed Wasowski, a.k.a. Colonel the Beers. And then you guys, uh, the, the, then the name changed again. But, I mean, they had to do a lot of that on-the-fly stuff because guys were kind of going out of the in and out, the revolving door. Right, right. I think they kept it going pretty well. I think everybody still, even though uh, Sergeant had left, I think people still stayed in tune. They still, you still had the Baron, you still had Larry Zabisco, and uh, of course all the other guys, Yukon uh, John in there. I mean, they I think they put, I think they put together a really good show, and they kept that going. I thought they did a really good job. I really enjoyed that. I, I, uh, I, I had a lot of fun with Baron and being in his his team, and I'm glad I was in his team because, of course, I was close to him at the time anyway. So it worked out. It worked out really well, but. Yeah, those are some good times. Probably some of the better times in the AWA was the uh, Team Challenge Series. So kept things a little interesting. I thought it was always a big plus on our end. So. Well, yeah, and a guy that you uh, were no stranger to, uh, really, I mean, he was a cult star, uh, you know, in the early 80s, but he really got his moment in the sun with the big turkey match with Colonel the Beers and then, of course, the big culminating battle royal where he won the, the team challenge for Larry's team. This is a guy that I just loved. I met him a couple years back, and he was just a lovely, quiet guy, but I still remember and love Jake the Milkman Milliman. Who, who could who, who could uh, just pass, the, pass uh, the, and put their nose up to an underdog like the Milkman? Oh yeah, you know, of course, Jake the Milkman was the uh, was the poster child for the Jabronis. But uh, you know what, J- uh, Jake did a great job. You know, everybody thought him as a loser, and all of a sudden, Jake winning or or putting putting the boots to somebody that was a big name. 
Yeah, that made the crowd pop, and they love to see a guy that was normally losing to come out on top. And and uh, I I thought that was good. And I also thought um, Tom Rocky Stone. I think Tom Rocky Stone turning heel and going against Larry Zabisco when he's on the same darn team as as Larry. I, I thought that was I thought that was funny as heck when they when they did that because you know I put a lot of controversy and a lot of uh, trust in this Team Challenge series. I can't remember if it was a battle royal or what it was, but I think Stone threw out Zabisco or was doing something to where it was his own team member, but he was going for it for himself. But, yeah, he was hilarious. He was exciting. I thought uh, I thought it went really well back then. I think the Team Challenge series was probably one of the better uh, last few um, angles that they ran at the AWA, so... And for with the AWA, and what I can remember watching too, when they, when they had the tapings at the Mayo, was it was a little bit more of an open door policy with some guys that were not contracted, uh, you know, signed deals with WWF or uh, the NWA at the time would be showing up. And the AWA had, you know, a Tully Blanchard or a Nikita Koloff show up on various shows for a, a couple of weeks uh, of TV, or at least the, the TV equivalent of a couple of weeks. And they also, AWA, you know, this was the post Super Clash 3 AWA, they also had some sort of arrangement with uh, some of the guys down in the Central States area. I, I know that you worked with in, in, in ring against Akio Sato, and there was also uh, Mike George, who was working the timekeeper gimmick at the time. So there was a, a still a little bit of excitement, I guess, amidst of the situation of, you know, the writing was on the wall, getting to be uh, ready to close up shop. But I think uh, there was a few last gasps where it did stay interesting, I thought, the television Regardless right, of the situation, right. they in, yep, they brought in some bigger names, um, and I think that definitely sold tickets. Especially when they did main events, so they did. Uh, I think they did the uh, what was the class of the champions at the St. Paul Civic Center. Uh, I think Rick Flair, Larry Zbyszko was on that pay per view. But so the last few years there, um, yeah, they brought in some big name talent. Definitely sold some tickets. And uh, it was, I mean, it was exciting that at least we got some of those bigger names in there. Of course, Ganyas have been around forever. They know a lot of people, and they're able to pull some strings and get the big guys in. So, yeah, I think it, uh, it, was, it was nice to see some bigger names come in into the AWA at that time. So. Did you have much, uh, were you in contact much with, with, with the Ganyas, with Greg and Vern? I know that Greg, around the time that you were starting up uh, working some of the shows for them, uh, Greg was kind of uh, going behind the scenes more so, ending his in-ring career. But did you uh, have much interaction with the Ganyas, Vern, or, or, or Greg at that time? And also another guy that was starting to make headway, uh, you know, climbing his way up uh, the ranks uh, in the office was a guy by the name of Eric Bischoff. Now, let's talk about first the Ganyas and then uh, Eric Bischoff as far as the interactions uh, did you have many interactions with these people and what can you remember of chatting with with a greg or a Vern or an eric you know what i was with uh i did i spent a lot of time or quite a bit of time with uh greg Ganya. um you know he was around while we were coordinating the events um but I, I i had a good relationship with greg greg was always decent to me and uh yeah i spent some time with greg maybe a little bit with eric bischoff i think Vern. Bird was in and out. I didn't see him that a whole much. He was pretty much, you know, either in the office or setting things up. So um, I think Burn from time to time, but quite a bit with Greg. You know, Greg was good to me, but I think uh, I think they uh, they knew how to put a, put together a show. They knew how to uh, put put together a match or some angles. So they always had some great ideas, and 
uh, my relationship with the Yanyas were good. And uh, even with Eric, I, didn't, I spoke with Eric uh, off and on, but, you know, I didn't know him that well. But um, Eric's, very, Eric's a very intelligent guy. So i got to give him that. But I think Eric did a great job. And, and uh, I think he did, he did a lot for the AWA, I think, so. I have to ask. Uh, you know, we're gonna get, we're talking a little bit about some of the, uh, the the shows you worked uh, for the WWF. But before we wrap up, put the pin on the AWA. Uh, what do you remember about when uh, it was in its real, true last days? When did you find out, or who did you find out from that uh, the company was going to be uh, shutting its doors, shuttering up things, and ending what was uh, a wow, a thirty year plus year ride in the state of Minnesota? You know, and I. I can't remember, you know, Chris, I started at the AWA, and I, you know, they were giving me a, a push there. They were, of course, I was part of the, uh, part of the uh, Team Challenge series. They were giving me a bump uh, in the business, which, of course, in this business, you got to work your way up, and if you got to know the right people, and I, I was getting established, and it was really unfortunate because, you know, that was, it, it just timing, timing was bad on my end because, of course, here's my time to raise to rise up and become a bigger name, and then all of a sudden, here we go, here comes the doors, they're closing up, and I can't remember who it was, uh, maybe it was Brad, could have been Brad, but um, I know it was, the news was that everything was shutting down, it was, it was kind of an unfortunate thing, but it was, that was my door, you know, everybody gets a shot in this business, you get a shot, it starts from somewhere small, and you work your way up. Of course, AWA was big at the time, and uh, just as I was starting to uh, spread my wings, and of course things just started to dry up. So it was a, it was it was hard on me because it was all about timing. You know, if it had been a year or two earlier, or uh, if I had a year or two in the business more, it would have made a big difference. You know, because of course I'd be more established. But it is what it is. It's uh, nobody nobody knows, mm-hmm. and uh, that, that's had a lot of people had their hopes up of. Of uh, becoming a, a bigger name, and uh, the doors got closed up, and, and it kind of shut a lot of guys out of the business. They were they had to go back down to either trying to go to a new territory, or try to do some uh, you know uh, work jobs with the AW or with the WWF. So you know that's uh, it was an unfortunate time because it kind of shut the doors on my future. So sometimes it's a good thing, but in the wrestling business, that it uh, definitely hurt. Uh, my career as a uh, wrestler in the AWA. You're listening to Wrestling Memories uh, with my guest Todd Becker. Now, Todd, we are going to talk a little bit about uh, some of the uh, the shots that you were able to uh, do. You know, were able to work with the World Wrestling Federation on some of their various television programs at the various tapings in the Midwest and and part, some dates in the East Coast. Now, who was your your liaison to get into the uh, WWF? And were you kind of part of a block group of guys from the Midwest? that would, would, would kind of work uh, these shows, kind of a sort of a group picked out by some some of the guys uh, for the WWF to, to work the enhancements? Right, uh, yes. Um, Tom Rocky Stone from Wisconsin, I think, was one key guy. And, of course, Al Burke, Mr. Outrageous, was tied in with Tom Stone. And I think, uh, you know, he, he was Tom was in charge of bringing in talent for the WWF, you know, to put over the big-name boys and, Tom had a big crew out of Wisconsin. He had a lot of guys, and of course, he brought in some guys from the Midwest or the Minneapolis area, like uh, me, Al Burke, 
and a few other guys, uh, Derek, uh, Derek Dukes, I can't remember if he was going at that time or not, but um, Red Tyler. But, yeah, they would, uh, there's a group of us in the uh, Minneapolis area that would load up and uh, head east or head southeast and, and uh, perform the uh, pay-per-views for Monday Night Raw and a few other shows. So it was pretty much Tom Rocky Stone that kind of opened that door for us and, and uh, I thank Tom for that. And I, I, I did a lot of stuff with Tom. I spent many years traveling with him and his group, too. So, What can you remember about Tom going to, to this big-time big, big time production that the WWF was putting on with these TV tapings for whether it be a Superstars or a Challenge or even for primetime wrestling? A little bit different as far as uh, AWA at, at that point uh, you know, in regards to the production because the WWF is world-renowned, or WWE now, for their, their wonderful productions, their editing, their teams are just so, so good. But what was the productions like? How would you compare, compare going to an AWA TV taping in Rochester to uh, something like, say, maybe in uh, Rockford or, you know, or in Madison or, or just a, a WWE uh, TV event in general? Well, you got to think about it. I mean, it was incredible. Uh, Monday Night Raw, live television, what is it, 10... 20,000 screaming fans, live TV. Monday Night Raw, I believe, is the most successful show on television. I think in history, I believe. It's one of the, it's still running today. It's been around forever. And you walk into the size of a, a stadium or a, an auditorium with that kind of people, that type of energy, live TV, there isn't a whole lot of room for screw ups. It's live. And uh, it's phenomenal. I tell you what, it's an adrenaline rush. You know, you just you loved it. It was extremely frightening from the beginning, but after a while, you learn to really enjoy that aspect. But um, quite a change. It went, you know, you went. That was big time. That was, there was no bigger than WWF Monday Night Raw. That was it. So if you were there, and granted, I wasn't there to win. I was there to put somebody over. But regardless, I was there. And uh, that was probably some of the best, best uh, times of my life. The, the best memories was uh, the Monday Night Raws and being with the biggest names in the industry. I want to look over this. I've looked over some of your stats here about some of the guys that you had a chance to uh, do the honors for throughout your uh, your run uh, off and on with the WWF through these tapings. I mean, you, you basically got a chance to be uh, in with a who's who of guys. I mean, we're talking, you know, Demolition Axe and Smash, Bill Eady and... Uh, Oh, Barry Darso. Barry Darso. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's yeah. a Minnesota boy, uh, Barry. And, of course, Bill Eady, one of the great minds, of course, previous as Superstar. He's been a machine. And, of course, Demolition Axe. That's a, one clear example. The Bushwhackers. You work with tag teams like the Rougeos. Barry Windham, you got were able to have in Barry's uh, Widowmaker run. You were able to work with these guys. I mean, Jake the Snake, Haku. Who were some of these guys that you really, really enjoyed working with out of the big guns? And, and some that uh, may have been a little bit stiff because you could have been you you were the new the newbie the, the enhancement guy but who were some of the guys that were easy to work with and others that may have been a little bit of a challenge during those tapings you know um, one of the one of the first guys I had uh, one of the first matches I believe was a uh, guy uh, Jake the Snake and guy a lot of these guys Jake the Snake Hacksaw Jim Duggan uh, a lot of these guys will give you something and they'll make a match out of it and um, you know. Everybody knows who's going to win. You know, you gotta you gotta make a match. You gotta make a story out of it. And a lot of these guys don't get it 
you know, uh, Jake the Snake, you know, you know, the match starts, of course, uh, I do something dirty, I get some heat, I, I fire on Jake the Snake, and I throw him out of the ring. Okay, well, I got everybody mad at me, he pops in, kicks my ass, DDTs me, and throw, I mean, that's what people pop, and you put a story together, I did something dirty to him, he retaliated, here comes the DDT, here comes the Snake, and people pop, and uh, guys like Jake the Snake was great to work with. One of my favorites was Hacksaw Jim Duggan. I love that guy. Had some. I had two, three matches with him. We put together a little bit of a match. He knew I was a wrestler in the past. We did a little bit of a wrestling, uh, you know, uh, uh, reversals and uh, just basic amateur wrestling stuff in there along with the pro side of it. But uh, I love working with Hacksaw. And, uh, of course, he's as smooth and as professional as 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 uh, some of the top guys. He was he was great to work with. Uh, accents match at Demolition. I worked with those guys two or three times. And those guys are true professionals. Great guys. Uh, they're very professional. They're well-trained. They know what they're doing. All three of these guys, um, definitely not uh, backyard material. These guys are true wrestlers. They know how to work. That's the problem nowadays. Is a lot of these guys don't know how to work. And if they can't do it right, they just stiff you, and they figure that's part of the match, and that's not the way it works. You, uh, I don't care how big or how good you are, you got to be able to work, and you're putting each other over. So if you don't work and you don't make a match out of it, who cares? It doesn't look good. It doesn't make any sense. You know, there's a lot of guys out there that just went out and stiffed you, and, and then, of course, you being the young guy, new guy coming in, they wanted to hurt you and make you want to quit. And, of course... I'm not going to let that happen. I'm not going to let them think they hurt me. So I'd suck it up, let them stiff me for five, ten minutes, and then I'd uh, normally when you got done with the match, you always go back to your opponent and you ask them how everything went. So I always made sure that uh, I went and got back in their face and made sure that everything was okay, and I made sure that they knew that I was not hurt. So I want to ask. You know, there was a few guys there. Oh, oh, sorry. I was going to ask. Uh, you you no. you survived a minute and twenty six with Ronnie Garvin. Now, did that include the Garvin stomp? Because uh, R- Ronnie, when Ronnie wanted to put you in a hole, like a sugar hole or something, he he would sometimes put a little extra tweak on it. From what I've heard through the years, uh, when he worked uh, for for Crockett in the various uh, territories. You know what, rugged Ronnie Garvin. I, I I faintly remember that match, and I don't remember how it went down or what he did. I don't remember him being all that stiff. Um, guys like, you know, a lot of the Simones were really stiff. Uh, Razor Ramon, of course, he didn't know how to work. He was just stiff. But um, a lot of guys didn't know how to work. But as far as Ronnie Garvin goes, I don't really remember him doing something out of the ordinary, you know. Uh, a guy like uh, Haku. Uh, Haku, I really, uh, I really respected that guy. That guy was a beast. And most guys in the wrestling business will tell you Probably the toughest dude around, one of the, the toughest, dangerous, most dangerous guys in the business was Haku. Nobody messed with that guy. And if you wrestled him, I wrestled him with uh, Andre the Giant. And uh, Haku was a little stiff. Uh, not too bad, but uh, I respect him. He wasn't, and actually, he was just, a lot of those Samoans were just heavy, hard hitters. But um, he was okay, you know, but... Um, there's a few guys there, like I said, that uh, they were real stiff in the ring. They didn't care. You got a, you know, chipped tooth or punched in the face. 
uh, on purpose, and they didn't care, man. You were just a nobody, and they were just going to strip you and do what they needed to do. So, I'm going to go into the final segment here uh, for our. Well, well, we still got a few more minutes, but I want to talk about this uh, video cassette I saw about a year ago, and it just kind of, I guess, got me back into watching Herb Abrams and the UWF, the Universal Wrestling Federation. Now, Herb had uh, various uh, tapings throughout the country. He started started off quite promising. He had lots of big shows down in the East and the West Coast and also down in Florida. But in 1993... You ended up crossing paths with uh, both Herb Abrams and the UWF, and you took part in a show that you can watch now on a bootleg video uh, called the Herb Abrams UWF Rampage. This was the time Herb Abrams, now remember Herb Abrams, you know Herb Abrams, he in North Dakota. Now this was the ultimate of strange bedfellows. Now t- tell me how you got involved, first of all, with Herb Abrams, a guy who, uh, you know, in his passing the year since, has really like his legend has grown and grown and grown. And now there's been talks of book of a book being put out about his life. Uh, just a, a rather eccentric character, and I know I'm putting that mildly. But 1993, how did you come across uh, Herb Abrams, and where was this? What what, what developed here? You know what. Uh I got, I got hooked up with a- Herb Abrams, of course, like I said, me and Mr. Outrageous Al Burke, were, uh, we've been friends for many, many years, and of course, Al Burke has been working with Herb for many years, Herb, he's been around Herb uh, professionally, and uh, as a friend, trying to help Herb get over his, uh, you know, his videotapes, his shows, uh, of course, Al Burke is also out in Hollywood doing movies, doing uh, music videos. Uh, many credentials uh, that Al Burke has. He's been in many, many movies, many shows. And, uh, of course, Her- uh, Al got me hooked up with Herb to do some shows in Minot, North Dakota. And, that's, of course, that's what I meant, Herb. And um, that guy, he's one of a kind. He was a loose cannon, and he was never seen anybody like him. But uh, he did what he wanted to do, and uh, it, he seemed to be successful at what he did. He created many, uh, many pay-per-views or many, many uh, tapes, and did a lot of pretty big shows. So he was making a statement in the wrestling industry. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. And of all places, North Dakota. I mean, the North Dakota State Fair and Herb Abrams. I mean, look at that on paper. I mean, with Herbie. I mean, and you watch some of the stuff, the video of the clips of uh, his appearances in the press conference that they had uh, in the days leading up to uh, this. Herb Herb wasn't uh, exactly afraid to get on in the, and, and and insert himself into the wrestling or into an angle. He was one of those very uh, animated types. Uh, well, fueled by whatever it was that was fueling him. But uh, did he try to, I mean, you got hooked up with him for this deal. Did he have any sort of, uh, you know, down-the-road dealings uh, that you that he was going to interest you in? Or was this just this one shot, this show uh, at the State Fair, these shows in Minot? You know what, we, we had talked about doing some more shows in the future. But um, I worked with him, I think, one or two times. Once was in Minot, North Dakota, and I believe somewhere uh, maybe down in the Kansas City area, I believe. But, yeah, this guy... Um, I, he, he booked shows all over. I, a, lot, a lot of times down south in Florida, and some through the Midwest. But yeah, I don't know how he got this deal hooked up with up in Minot. But he was a hell of a talker. He was a hell of a salesman, and I think uh, I think he had a love for the business, for the wrestling business, and uh, he was going to do everything and anything he could 
to be part of it, and he did. He was definitely a wild man, a wild animal, and um, the, the stuff I seen him do and what how he acted was, uh, yeah, you don't see that every day, especially uh, especially uh, a man such as that. That uh, somebody like that coming to Minot, North Dakota. I don't think Minot, North Dakota, seen a guy such as that before. I think it took a few years for uh, Minot to get over that one, as far as that. Yeah, that could be. That's probably still not over it. Well, he also, I, I'm watching this tape he, for this, uh, this, this, these tapings. He also, uh, we're going to talk about some of the players uh, who worked on the card, but uh, he had brought in another guy that's a bit of a wild card in his time, and you can watch on this video. Uh, he had a few uh, off-color things before he was on the air. It was outtakes, but here, a guy who was a legend of the business, but yeah, he was, he was definitely known for, uh, you know, being a little bit more outspoken, we're talking about Mr. John Tolos, the Golden Greek. I mean, the Golden Greek John Tolos in Minot with Herb Abrams in the UWF, I mean, this story keeps getting better. Right. I think the two of them together put on a hell of a show. Of course, uh, Herb Abrams being Jewish and being uh, living the lifestyle that he did in uh, the, the Golden Greek, I think, uh, I think that was a pretty good team to where they sold tickets and created a lot of a lot of excitement. So, um, I think they did, I think they paired well together. And speaking of excitement, well, uh, a guy that was uh, on this video, he was uh, really uh, getting out in into the fair crowd. Uh, a guy that was known down in the central states. He uh, had worked with Herb uh, through uh, various parts of the country with the UWF. A guy that had a whole bunch of uh, charisma. We're talking about Stevie Ray. Now, uh, what do you remember uh, yeah. of Stevie Ray, the Wild Thing, man? So, uh, yeah, actually, I wrestled Stevie Ray, and that was uh, that was our. I think we we're one of the last few matches in that uh, in that show in Minot. But I did get a chance to wrestle Stevie Ray, uh, talented guy. He definitely knows how to work, and uh, he thought he brings in a lot of charisma. Like you say, the guy's uh, guy's got quite a bit of talent. I think he did well, but uh, he's a good wrestler. I have to give him that. We uh, he was. He had talent. He was trained right, and um, he brought in a lot of excitement. So I think uh, Stevie Ray sells some tickets. I think he's he's a bigger guy down south, of course, but um, but uh, it was good to have him in the show. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was clips of him uh, out on the uh, fairgrounds. He even took a, a chance and was riding a gyroscope. He was doing anything to kind of get the fans <laughs> going, and it's these are just amazing clips. Still watching them, you know, 20, 24 years later. It, it's just amazing, and I'm going to try to get uh, Stevie on the program to talk about his UWF stories here in the uh, in the new year. But you know, this was a show too that had a, a couple of legends on it as well. We're talking about the Killer Bees, Jim Brunzel and uh, B. Brian Blair, and you had a chance uh, a couple of different occasions uh, at these tapings to to work with uh, Brian and and Jim. Uh, you you did the singles, and I swear, was that you under the mask as one of those black hearts? <laughs> no, that wouldn't be me. No, no, it wasn't. So yeah, the the Killer Bees, Brian Blair. Actually, uh, I'm a friend of Brian Blair. Brian, I seen him a couple years back here in Vegas at the uh, your annual uh, Cauliflower Alley Club. Uh, Brian's a great guy, and uh, of course Jimmy Brunzel being here from the Minneapolis area uh, with Greg Ganya. I mean, uh, much respect to that man. Jim Brunzel's a, a well-respected man, great man, and. Uh, uh, he's one of the uh, one of the great guys from the AWA that uh, that uh, I endured. So the Killer Bees, 
Yes, that was it was good to have. Like, I think they uh, they were a big part of that show up in Minot. As was Mr. Outrageous as well, and a guy that he worked with on on, on the event, and one of, one of the matches that he worked was a guy that was uh, who went to school uh, nearby where we record here in Thief River Falls uh, in Grand Forks. A guy who was at the University of North Dakota. He was in the amateur wrestling program. He ended up uh, going down. I think he was uh, one of the guys that was trained in by Sharky. I'm not sure, but uh, when I say the name Randy Gusto, what does that bring back to you? Oh, yeah, Randy, Randy. Yep, Randy was a heavyweight wrestler out of North Dakota. Randy Gusto. Yeah, I haven't heard that name in a while. Hopefully he's doing okay. He was a pretty pretty heavy, pretty big guy. Uh, moved well for a big man. Um, and, uh, of course, he was a big name where he was from in North, North Dakota. But uh, Randy, Randy had some talent. Randy could move. So and he was a great wrestler again, so... Yep, haven't heard, heard that name in a long time. Yeah, bring, brings back some memories for you. Also, uh, the Warlord uh, was in the main event uh, against, well, they, they gave him the billing as the UWF IC champion, I guess, uh, Bob Orton Jr. Now, what do you remember from uh, watching these guys? I mean, you, you were familiar with the Warlord, of course, but how familiar were you yeah. with Bob Orton Jr. at that point? And did you get a chance to chat with him a little bit, kind of meet the guy? Did you work with him later on? What What was the story there with Bob? Well, uh, of course, I was a big fan of the Orton family, Bob Orton. Unfortunately, I didn't get much chance to talk with him. I think everybody was either either too busy or they stuck with their group. Uh, but I, unfortunately, I did not get much time to spend with the Ortons or uh, or Junior. But, um, of course, like I said, I've known Terry Stinsky for a long time. I used to train with him. And I worked with him in WWF, so I knew Terry. But um, unfortunately, uh, the Ortons, I, I uh, didn't have much chance to to get to talk with him. But I, I would love to. That is another another legendary wrestler, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't really that much long after uh, of the the show in in Minot. Really, the time didn't go too far down the line when uh, we we heard news of uh, well, I guess Herb Abrams. Uh, unfortunate death but boy the stories and the details of which he went out were uh basically almost like rock star proportion but uh what happened where were you when you heard the news about herb uh, abrams passing away and were you at all shocked uh, at the way the whole thing went down i mean it was uh, quite an ordeal there before he uh he ended up passing away was it from a heart attack or heart failure yeah, well i think uh the, the crazy lifestyle the cocaine i believe uh, the ladies the you know, I was, I knew, I mean, I was around and I seen what he did in, in Minot. I don't know where he got the ladies he got up in Minot, but uh, somehow he had ladies up at the at the hotel and he was partying it up. We had rooms, me and uh, Mr. Outrageous had a room right next to him. And of course, everybody's uh, partying it up and uh, drinking and we had a room next door. And of course, there's always that door that keeps both rooms separately so mm-hmm. Al had managed to unlock the other side of Herb's door and we were kind of watching the show on the other end but but uh, that guy's a maniac and uh, that was a crazy night but uh, Al Burke uh, spent a lot of time with Herb and I remember there was a right before Herb had passed away he was I think Al was at his house in, in California and something was going down and uh, uh, Herb was freaking out, and he was actually laying out in the on his on his parking or out on his uh, driveway, 
laying down and freaking out and screaming, and I can't remember what uh, what the ordeal was, but it was quite a show because Alla told me about it, and then it seemed like it was a, a day or two later he had passed away. But, you know, when you live that lifestyle, the damages that it does to your body, you know, of course your heart can only take so much, but um, that's, it sounded to me like you're living at that age. I, I can't remember how old Herb was when he passed, but, yeah, you can only do that for so long. Your heart's going to get out sooner or later. So uh, that's always an unfortunate thing. But I think uh, Outrageous Al called me uh, that day and uh, let me know that he had passed. So I want to talk about some of the stuff outside of the UWF, the AWA, and the WWF. Uh, I want to talk about some of the things, uh, the companies you worked with or some of the matches you worked with uh, up in the Midwest and the Indies because uh, there's a lot, there was a lot of little companies, a lot of uh, things that were coming out, good things coming out of the Minnesota pro wrestling indie scene uh, in the late 80s in the Midwest in general there from, uh, what, late 80s up into the uh, early 90s post-AWA. Uh, most notably, uh, we, we, there's always been a lot of talk about the Pro Wrestling America shows that uh, Eddie Sharkey had put on it in Fridley at George's, but there was a few other promotions mm-hmm. as well. Can you talk about some of the uh, the indies that you were able to be a part of? Uh, I mean, we talked enough about the big companies. I want to talk about some of the the stuff uh, that doesn't get quite uh, a lot of mentioned uh, back in the day the eight, the uh, late eighties uh, into the nineties on the indie scene. Yeah, you know what? Uh, I was part of. Uh, I didn't really. Uh, I wasn't with much of uh, Sharkey and the Sharkey's group. I think that was pretty much a lot of his own guys working. And uh, uh, I did work with uh, Sheik Adnan Al Casey and Ken Patera had started uh, started a, a federation where I'd work with them and help them set them up. And, I, of course, I'm in the car business, and uh, I know the Sheik. Sheik needed a van to put the ring in. and he'd, I don't know if anybody knows how the Sheik talks, but he talks down on you. That's just the way he is, you know. And then Becker used to me, I need a van to put the ring in. And he's always bugging me to get him, get, him get him a truck to put the ring in. So I finally found a truck, and I said, hey, Sheik, I got this I got this van. It's uh, 12 or 16 feet by 10 feet by, God damn it, you put that truck going. We need that truck by December. God damn it. So anyways, he's on me all the time about getting this truck done. I said, well, this is the size. I don't care, damn it, get this truck ready. So I got the truck ready. Got it all ready for him. I brought it over to his house. He says, God damn it, too small. <laughs> so, all that work, time and effort to get this van ready for him, it was that we didn't even, he wasn't even listening to me on the dimensions because, you know, they couldn't fit the ring in it because it wasn't the right dimensions. And he told me to go ahead and do it. So I eventually had sold it to another promoter in, actually he's in Shakopee, and I'm trying to remember who that was. He ran some shows, but he bought the, he bought the van from me, and he made payments until, of course, they got the, the van so paid for. But but uh, I worked with uh, Sheik and Ken Patera for a while. I did some independence with them. And, of course, I did go down. Um, I don't know if you remember Christopher Love was with the AWA towards the end. Bert Prentice, yeah. And I think, yeah, Bert Prentice, uh, Christopher Love. And I think, uh, I think he was friends with uh, Rick Flair, so it seemed to be. But uh, I did a lot of stuff with Chris, and I remember when I worked with the AWA, we did a we did a show at the AWA at the St. Paul Civic Center. It was on a Saturday, and uh, Prince Prince had a show on Sunday night. Prince was a big wrestling fan, and Prince gave all the AWA guys tickets to his show, 
and uh, oh, wow, which was fantastic. But uh, Bert Prentice somehow got a hold of Ric Flair or something, and then uh, we went up and picked up Ric Flair's two sons and took them to the Prince concert. So, um, anyways, uh, I had a a new a new uh, Bert Prentice uh, at the AWA, and then, of course he went down to Wichita, Kansas at Cake TV and started a uh, federation down there. We had a uh, contract with uh, uh, Cake TV. We did a show there, and, of course, we traveled all through Oklahoma uh, and Kansas uh, doing shows all throughout. Of course, I, we had um, Chris brought in uh, a lot of the midgets. So I lived with four midgets for quite some time, and let me tell you, that's... Uh, that's quite a lifestyle, and that's, that's something you don't do every day. But it was almost seems like a fairy tale, but it was a lot of good times, especially out in the desert with four midgets uh, traveling the road. It's a lot of good memories. But um, that was a, probably a, quite a quite a quite a show we had going on throughout the uh, the Kansas Oklahoma area. About when did you decide that, you know, I'm, I'm just going to get away from the business? Uh, you mentioned that you uh, did, got into the car dealership business. When did you decide to just kind of say, hey, I'm going to hang up the boots. This is uh, good. I had some fun, but I got to go uh, and just face another chapter in my life. Yeah. So, you know what? You know, a lot of these people you don't know, of course, in the wrestling business, you don't make any money. Even, the, you know, when I work with, you know, AWA, WWF, yeah, I made some, they were probably the best payers of all time. They're, they paid the best. But even at that, a lot of these guys, 50 bucks a night, 100 bucks a night, you get dropped on your head, you chip your teeth, you screw up your leg, you can't get health insurance because you're a liability, you're, you're considered a stunt man. If they ever found out you were a pro wrestler, they would drop you. So, you know, you don't make any money. It's all this fame. And you work with guys that are trained in the backyard or, you know, they want to do Jake's DDT. They want to do Ric Flair's leg lock, and then they want to do the somebody's uh, inverted body vices. You know, they they all want to do these uh, these big shots, and they don't know how to put a match together. And you're going in the ring with these guys for fifty bucks uh, for what? I mean, it's ridiculous. And I'm I'm cheap, and I I pack money away. But I think at the end of the wrestling industry, by the time I Opened up my little box of cash for that made my money. It was probably eight hundred dollars in the box. There was nothing there, but I was wrestling down in Kansas, and um, I got into a argument with uh, Bert Prentice's so-called boyfriend, and um, he got in my face, and uh, some words were said, and uh, I had him by the neck, and I threw him over the threw him over the couch. I had him by the throat, and then the midgets uh, all jumped around and told me to hit him. <laughs> which I never did. I, I just, I threatened him. And he said, I'm going to call the police. Let me up. And then I, I let him up. And then, uh, of course, he went back to birth practice. And they told me to pack and leave, which was fine. Because, of course, you're not making any money. The wrestling business, you've got to, there's a point in time where you say, okay, I ain't making any money. Your body's busted up. And it's time to look at something else. It's like being a rock star. It's like being a wrestler. Uh, we all want to be an artist or, or have a dream of something, but you know what? Then there's reality. You can't you can't live on it. Your body can't do it for so long. You know, there's going to be a time where your body's going to give out or you can't heal. And I remember probably about age 36, um, I started just pretty much hung things up, backed off. And my body ached for, it ached like hell for about a year. And I think I was young enough for my body 
uh, healed. And uh, a lot of my friends go in into their 40s and so on, kept wrestling. And, you know, nowadays, I mean, thank God, I'm in, uh, my body's in very good condition. I got, uh, you know, I have a sore back as I get up in the morning, but then again, who doesn't? So uh, that's probably the only thing I really have to deal with. But uh, a lot of my friends that were 40s, 50s that kept going, they never healed. And for the rest of their lives, they've got messed up knees, shoulders, elbows, neck, you know, landing wrong or somebody being at the wrong place or in the wrong part of the ring or a boot comes up and gets you in the mouth. You know, there's, there's so many, there's so much damage. I, I mean, any, any wrestler you talk to that's been in the business, they've got something broke or busted or half healed or a shoulder ripped out or, you know, there's always something. And, uh, you gotta, Hopefully you're smart enough to know better. It's time to uh, time to hang it up or look for something better. And I, it was very hard for me because I loved. I'm kind of a rough guy, anyways, and I love uh, physical activity. But uh, you know, you just you got to be smarter than your than your body and just back off. So thank goodness I healed, and thank goodness I went down the road I did because um, you know I, I wouldn't have the life that I have. I wouldn't have the family that I have. You know, some things happen for a reason. I, I remember uh, with the WWF that I had an interview. I, I did a lot of um, guest refereeing with the AWA, and I did guest. Uh, it was, and actually, the WWF at that time was looking for a newer referee, and that was they needed a referee, but they also were doing some cutbacks. But I had an interview. Uh, I'm trying to remember. It was. Uh, who it was with Chief uh, Strongboy, one of those guys, but I had an interview with them, and they were just just about ready to pull the trigger on hiring me as a referee because I've done it for a while. And then they, they couldn't really answer. They said, just just hold off. And then after that, it seemed like they cut back, and it was off the table. So, you know, it may have been a good thing that I had a contract. And I, I traveled with the WWF, but then again... Like I said, I wouldn't have my family, my daughters that I have today, so things happen for a reason. Maybe that was a good thing that I never got the contract. So. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, I mean, nope. it, it happens for a reason. That is a very true statement, an often heard and often used statement, and it definitely uh, was uh, true in your case. Well, Todd, the timekeeper is looking at me. We have went a full Broadway. Uh how many right how many on, bro- man. how many Broadways have you been in your is this the one of your first uh, in the in your wrestling career or did you how far have you went in your in, in ring time? Uh, as far as timeline goes, time, yeah, we did, I've done a few I've done a few Broadways. Matter of fact, I did a Broadway, um, whether it was the Clash of the Champions at the St. Paul Civic Center, and me and Tony Tanucci did uh, did a Broadway to the very end. And I've had a few of those. I did some out in Can- uh, excuse me out in California, Blythe, California. Um, but, um, just a handful, not many, you know, well, you can add, uh, you can add this one to the mix now. (laughs) Now you can add, yep. This one's, uh, now you can add this to, uh, to the trophy case, uh, uh, another Broadway for Todd Becker. I want to thank you so much. And you know, my friend, you're always welcome to come back and hey, if I end up uh, getting hooked up with Stevie Ray, we could have a, a little UWF program, uh, you know, sometime down the road. Well, let's hope Stevie Ray's in one piece still. So uh, I haven't heard from him in a while, but uh, let's hope he's still walking and, and moving like he should. So that would be great. All right. Uh, thank you so much, Todd. Again, the door's always open, my friend. 
Well, thank you so much for the call, Glenn. You have a wonderful day, and, and thanks for putting me on your show, all right? All right. For Todd Becker, I'm Glenn Broggett. This has been Wrestling Memories.